My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm not trying to pick on a single newspaper or newspaper owner. I am singling out one example in the interest of saving your time because the examples are endless and the clips are all the same. Glacier Media has announced it is shutting down both the Dawson Creek Mirror and Fort St. John's Alaska Highway News with final editions being released this week. President Peter Kvarnstrom said running the newspapers, both the print and online editions, is no longer cost-effective. That was just a few weeks ago, and what's notable about it is just how common it is. A steady drip of longtime local newspapers, sometimes TV or radio stations, in smaller markets across the country, like clockwork, vanishing. The death of local news is not news anymore. The only question is what will replace it. Today, the industry is at a tipping point. As much as the closures of hundreds of outlets have left a gaping hole in the media landscape, there are reasons for optimism. Independent, reader-funded, digital publications have sprung up everywhere, driven by passionate reporters, supported by both government grants and small communities willing to fork over actual cash in exchange for digital news. And right now is when they need to be growing. And one of the main ways those outlets grow is by finding a new audience online. And where does a digital outlet find its audience? Well, that would be on the platforms that the Canadian government is currently battling with, making it difficult for Canadians to find local news engage with it, and support it, while it still has a fighting chance. See what I mean about a tipping point? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. April Lindgren is the principal investigator for the Local News Research Project at Toronto Metropolitan University's School of Journalism. Hello, April. Good morning. Can you sum up the state of local news for me in one word? Struggling. We spoke a few years ago about this, and I think struggling would have applied then too, but there's been a number of changes. I mean, obviously bad, but also some interesting innovations. So maybe just, can you give us sort of some recent examples of the downside of local news in Canada, just to set the scene for people who aren't journalism nerds and and don't obsessively pay attention to various small-town papers closing? Sure. We've got, on the broadcast side, we've got Bell & Rogers asking uh, the CRTC to reduce the requirements for local news on their TV stations because they're struggling on the advertising side. We've got continuing job losses at media across the board a resurgence in closings, uh, particularly of of newspapers, 
But also we're starting to see some radio stations as well. There was a pause during the pandemic because there were all those government subsidies uh, that kept uh, news businesses alive, just like they kept a whole bunch of other businesses alive. But with the end of those subsidies and advertising still not really recovering, we're starting to start seeing, again, an uptick in, in, in closings. And then, of course, we've got uh, Meta, or face, formerly Facebook, blocking access to news on, on its platform. So that's sort of the list, a, a, a bit of a list of the uglies, so to speak. Explain to me a little bit about uh, the Local News Research Project. How do you quantify the closures of newspapers and radio stations and, and actually track it? And what can we say as a result of that data? Well, I started this project um, quite a while ago. And what we do is we have been tracking what's closing at the local level and what's opening at the local level in terms of local news outlets. We picked 2008 as the starting date because that's when the internet really came on in, in fuller force and started to make it become a place where people went for news. And also advertising started to um, become a force on online. And also it was a, a terrible recession that uh, up until that point, you know, news organizations had been doing okay, right. especially on, on the newspaper side. So if you look back to 2008, what we've got now as of basically October 1st is 511 news outlets of all types have closed in 342 places across Canada. Wow. You could say, well, sure, but lots of places have opened too. But the truth is only uh, just over 200 have opened in 150 communities. So that's a pretty big net loss of local news sources. Um, Three quarters of them have been community newspapers. And you say, well, so who cares? Is it newspapers? Is it TV? What does it matter? But there's quite a bit of research that's shown that newspapers punch above their weight in terms of making a difference to the uh, information available to people in their communities, mostly because they've often tended to have the biggest uh, newsrooms and the most reporters out there on the ground. So the newspaper, uh, whether it's the daily or, or the weekly, it pr- produces uh, their editions. And, you know, some radio stations might pick up the headlines and use that for their newscast because they have a very small newsroom. Right. And TV might take its cue from what the lead stories are in the newspaper for whatever the local stories they produce on the local television station, if the community is lucky enough to have a, a television station. Can this be profitable or even a break-even endeavor if newspapers are the driving force of local news? You know, they were surviving via subsidies. The subsidies are gone. Without those subsidies, is it even possible? Well, there still are local newspapers that are doing okay. They're usually very community-focused. They've got strong relationships with their communities. The advertisers and and business people in town uh, recognize that there is a a community good to have the newspaper uh, in in their midst. And they're willing to buy advertising. And if they do charge for uh, su- subscriptions, people are willing to subscribe. But they're pretty few and far between. The bigger issue is that we've had so many newspapers that are part of big chains of newspapers that have just been cutting and cutting and cutting so that you end up with uh, what one U.S. researcher has called a ghost newspaper. Hmm. It turns up every week, perhaps as a weekly or even a daily, but there's very little content in it. So people think, well, okay, closed, who cares? Like there's nothing there because they've been so cut to the bone. The numbers are so shocking, uh, Jordan, in terms of the cutbacks. If you you look at the Ottawa Citizen, where I I spent a lot of my early career, in its heyday, it had like almost 200 people in its newsroom covering the capital. 
there are about 20 now. Wow. Even, you know, the Toronto Star has always, you know, been a, a going enterprise. Its newsroom is about less than 200 people now, and it used to be over 600, uh, even as early as uh, 2009, uh, the union was telling me recently. If we're speaking about uh, the importance of news to small communities, particularly that uh, aren't well served by giant national outlets, what about non-English papers for ethnic communities? Do we track those with the local news project and and how are they doing? Is there still an audience or a, a viable business model for them? Yeah, so that's, I think, one of the drawbacks of the map. I mean, partly it's because we don't have access to the multiple languages that a lot of diasporic or, or ethnic papers are published in. But I do know that the churn there has been quite significant as well. Because, you know, again, the economics are just difficult. You have to pay for newsprint. You have to pay to, uh, to distribute the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then you have to pay to get some sort of content to put on, put on those pages. It's a pretty tough business proposition now. Unless you've got really deep roots, in, again, in the community where people are willing to advertise because they aren't just in it to get their message out. They're in it because they see the newspaper or the media outlet as important to the strength and, and vibrancy of the community. I know both you and I as journalists can talk, you know, endlessly about how critical local news is to a community or uh, even a large even a large city if we're talking about big newsrooms being gutted. What research do we have that tells us exactly what kind of effects it has? You mentioned uh, earlier some that talk about newspapers specifically, but can we quantify what losing local news actually means for the people who live in a community? Sure. So, I mean, there's been quite a bit of research that shows that the more local news that's available, particularly in newspapers, the greater participation there is in elections, greater voter turnout, fewer incumbents getting elected because there's a bit more scrutiny of what's going on. We have that kind of research. But, you know, I'm also starting to hear anecdotally the consequences of, of the loss of, of local media. There's um, a town in northwestern Ontario, Dryden, that doesn't have a local paper anymore. And I was talking to the mayor a while ago. And he was saying that, you know, they were had a newly elected city council with a lot of new councillors on it. And they took the advice of their uh, staff and said, OK, we're going to put in place a tax on service lots in our town that that are vacant. So they just thought, OK, that sounds reasonable. It's a tax re- revenue source and and we should encourage development on these sources because we're pl- providing water and sewer. Anyway, so they put that they voted to in favor of the tax. Well, then the news finally gets out to the community and they've got an uproar on their hand from people who own all of these lots. Now, as it turns out, they kept that tax in place, but there was a whole lot of problems and political turmoil because there had been no reporting on this process that, you know, when the staff had recommended it, nobody reported it. When council uh, talked about it for, in the early stages, nobody was reporting on it. So it completely blindsided citizens. So it's bad for people who live in a community because they don't know about decisions that are being made on their behalf. And it also makes places more difficult to govern because everybody thinks that these poor souls who have volunteered to be their city councillors are always up to something nefarious or making bad decisions or ignoring them. So there are real consequences when there's not a reliable, timely news that's produced independent of vested interests. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. 
It's the story of Broomgate. How a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. When you gave me the numbers at the beginning and you said uh, so many news outlets have closed, um, I was honestly not expecting you to say more than 200 have opened. Do we have any success stories? Is there a new model that can work? Sure. Okay, so first I said, you know, there are still some community papers that are making a go of it. So, so there are those types of examples, but there's also quite a few new digital plays happening, digital news organizations, and they're making a difference. So, you know, we had this recent um, uproar in Toronto over the Ford government's attempts to grab protected land in the Greenbelt in the, in the, in the GTA. Mm-hmm. Now, that has been reversed by the Ford government under extreme pressure and, in, and a report from the provincial auditor, who in the process of doing her work said, it was so important that the Narwhal, which is um, a digital magazine that covers environmental issues, and the Toronto Star, those reporters from those two news organizations really just kept reporting and going after that story and digging deeper and deeper to try and find out, you know, what was going on there. The Narwhal is a really interesting example because it is really tightly focused, but it's not tightly focused on a community. It is tightly focused on an issue. Yes. So it's tightly focused on an issue, which is environmental concerns. But the interesting thing about the Narwhal is it does not have advertising and you don't have to pay to get it. Anybody can go online and read the Narwhal's coverage. So how does it survive? And this is, you know, one of the new, newer models. It depends on its readers to, to support it. And it also is depending on foundations and philanthropic support. So here you have an example of a, of a different sort of uh, revenue model that, that so far has been working. I mean, that Narwhal has managed to expand its coverage uh, and its newsroom, actually, mm-hmm. quite a bit in the, recent, in the last two years, even throughout the pandemic. I always think of this model and I think of it kind of like uh, subscription streaming services, right? Like you can have Netflix and Disney Plus, but once you get to a point where you're looking at Netflix and Disney Plus and Apple TV and whatever, you say, look, if it all depends on me, I can't pay for all these. And the truth of the matter, though, Jordan, is that Canadians aren't paying much of anything for digital news. Right. And last year, there was an annual survey, about 16% of people said they were paying for digital news in some way, shape or form. This year, it's down to 11%. So all these outlets are surviving based on uh, the ability of 11% of Canadians to actually pay for them. Well, that's, so, that's what the numbers seem to suggest. Yeah, it's a survey done by the Reuters um, Institute at Oxford University. It does a, a worldwide survey every year. So that was particularly uh, discouraging. But I, I will say, though, that, you know, the Narwhal and the Local are two examples out of the 10 media organizations that have Revenue Canada approval basically as, as charity. So if you, if you send them some money, you're going to get a tax receipt, just like if you send money to your local hospital. So that's, I think, one positive thing that's been happening. And even local community foundations also have the potential to support local journalism. And I'm actually just working on a, a resource for funders across the country to talk about why it's important to support local journalism and, and to, to stand up and be an additional source of revenue for either for-profit or non-profit uh, news organizations in your community. The last thing that I want to talk about is possibly the biggest thing that's changed since the last time we spoke about local news. 
Meta right now and possibly Google as well, uh, limiting access to local Canadian news online. Who is Bill C-18 designed to help and who does it hurt? And is it worth the Canadian government sticking to its guns on this because this is something that news outlets need? Or is this just getting in the way of uh, startups like the Narwhal and the Tai who rely on Canadians being able to find them? Yeah, you know what? I honestly don't know the answer to that. The argument in favor of what the government's doing is that some of this advertising revenue that's being vacuumed up by by Google and, and, and Meta would go to news organizations so that that would be an additional source of revenue for journalism in Canada. One consensus that seems to have emerged in terms of survival is that a news outlet needs multiple sources of money. So you might have advertising, you might have some subscription, maybe you have some sort of foundation or reader or member support for people who really believe in your cause. You do some events, you get the events sponsored and and then people come and they'll talk about, say, a pressing community need and you, you play a role in building community that way. And then these payments from the, the big platforms would be potentially another source. Uh, you know, the heyday of advertising and a little bit of subscription monies covering the cost of news reporting are gone. So multiple revenue sources are required. Okay, so so that's the argument in favor of C-18. Now, if Google goes ahead and also sort of bans news, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's hugely problematic for all of us. Yeah. But it's 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 also a major threat for news organizations because what it means for your audience is that you're going to have to put out some effort and go and look at the news on the website of your local media outlet. So do you know who they are? Do you know which ones you want to rely upon? Right. Well, you can't find new ones that way. You're going to go to the CBC, the Star, the Globe and Mail, because those are the ones that you know. And, you know, nobody's going, with all due apologies to them, uh, nobody but the most dedicated of supporters is going to the Narwhal. Yeah. So the discoverability issue is huge. Now, I think, you know, at the local level, people, if people want to find out what happened at council last night, if there's still anybody reporting on it, hopefully you'll know what your local paper is, although I'm not even sure about that. But you're going to have to go and and do more work to find out what the local news is. The example I always think about, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Stansted Journal in the Eastern Townships, which is where I uh, spent a lot of time growing up. It was Canada's longest publishing weekly newspaper, published for more than like 175 years, closed in 2019. I was thinking about this as we were preparing for this interview, and I thought, you know, I don't know now, and I don't live there anymore, but I spent time in the summer there. I don't know where I would look to figure out, like, what the Stansted City Council was doing. I have no idea. Yeah. That's a huge problem. It, it is huge. I mean, I have a modest idea for this that I'm just in the process of writing about, which is that we should do a, a census of local news organizations every year for every community and that the librarians in their midst could provide the data. So hmm. we'd ask every librarian in the country, where do people in your community go for news? And then we put up a searchable website where people could type in the name of their community and uh, find out what are the news sources, reputable news sources recommended by my librarian or that my librarian is aware of in my community. So that that would be go a little ways towards solving this discoverability issue, along with solving a whole bunch of other issues. The other benefit of a, an approach like that is um, and when the government or foundations want to figure out what are the most poorly served places in the country in terms of access to local news. Um, having the census data available every year that would be up to date would help 
uh, pinpoint those places. The last thing I want to ask you is just, you know, we spoke, as I mentioned, a few years ago, and we could have said the exact same thing about uh, cuts to local news, closing of local news outlets, gutted newsrooms, etc. And it it continues and maybe has even accelerated after the pandemic. But because we have seen these startups have this success and we are looking at this charity model, you know, overall, are you more or less optimistic about the future of local news than you were, say, uh, 2019 pre-pandemic? Uh, I think I'm probably about the same. I Like, I honestly don't know what the future is going to be if people don't recognize how important it is to know what's going on around you so that you can have a say in the decisions made locally on your behalf so that, you know, you can know, learn about people on the other end of town that you'd never meet, but you can read about them in, in your local media so that you have a place to go for reliable information so that, you know, rumor and misinformation don't just take over and and flood the community with potentially hate or misinformation or lies or or rumor. You know, I think we have to take responsibility as 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 individuals as well and that means finding reliable sources of news and supporting those sources of local news. April, thank you for this. I wish uh, the news was better, but, you know, maybe at least there's hope and maybe somebody listening to this will go and uh, support one of those uh, charitable organizations that uh, bring us the news. Yeah, just support any local news organization in your midst that's bringing you the news. April Lindgren, Principal Investigator for the Local News Research Project. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Here is where I would be remiss not to thank the guests that we have had from so many of those digital outlets or small local newspapers that make this show what it is. The more those outlets vanish, the fewer stories podcasts like us can bring you. So support them if there's one in your neighborhood or one that has an issue you care about. If you want to support us, you don't have to give us your money. You can just follow us on social media or write a review, tell a friend, do something nice, spread the word. That's all we ask for. You can do that by finding us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can also send us an email, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And of course, you can phone us 416-935-5935. And as I mentioned, the best way... To show us you care is to go to whatever podcast platform you like, find us there, and like, subscribe, rate, follow, review, everything you can do. We see it and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.